You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello there, I'm Dr. Himera Iqbal and I'm an Associate Professor of Psychology at the Social Research Institute here at the UCL Institute of Education. Today, we are so pleased to have Professor Peter Blatchford with us, who is Professor of Psychology and Education at the UCL Institute of Education, where he has spent most of his career. Peter's academic roots are in developmental psychology and throughout his career, he has tried to better understand social and developmental processes in classroom settings. He has coordinated and led on a number of important projects on topics like class size and pupil adult ratio, support staff, and on special educational needs in secondary education. We'll talk about some of these in our discussion. Peter is also honorary professor at the Educational University of Hong Kong. At the moment, he's busy mapping out the idea of a social pedagogy of classroom learning as part of a new research project. Today, we're going to talk to Peter about his life, career, and work on the educational effects of class size differences. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you for being here. How are things with you? I'm pretty good, thank you very much. Where are you working from at the moment? I'm working from my study at home, where I have spent much of the last three years, I think, really, because I've been on a, a Levy Hume major research fellowship, which oh, has been uh, an interesting experience with a lot of, um, well, a lot of kind of reading and writing, just what academic life should be. <laughs> oh, in a dream world. So in a dream know. world, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so lockdown for you wasn't a big change because you'd already set your study up and, you know, you were all set, really. Sounds like it. No, I think I've been relatively fortunate in that regard. I haven't had to go. I mean, I, it would be awful if one had uh, field work that was interrupted. Uh, I mean, apart from all the really terrible things that people have had to suffer, that's not a massive hindrance in life. But it, from a research point of view, that's pretty, pretty drastic. Absolutely. Well, I've got loads of questions to ask you, but I wanted to start right at the beginning uh, because, you know, a lot of your work is on class size. So I wanted to know what school was like for you. And do you remember being in very large classes? And what was the experience like for you all those years back? Interesting question. Well, I went to Ripple Infant and Junior Schools in Barking, and this would have been in the, the 50s, in fact. And we had large classes, there's no doubt about that. I actually, I, I dug out some photographs that my mother had. And one of them was of the school class, which was taken when I was in the equivalent of what is now year six. And there were 50 in the class. And I was driven to kind of put this uh, photograph onto a slide and show it at a talk I gave on class size. Actually, it was to head teachers from that local authority about, you know, the kind of story of what I was in. And, you know, I mean, there's an obvious question whether it, you know, whether it harmed me, as it were, being in a class that big, which is a, an interesting kind of line on it, I think. But yeah, no, it was a very big class. It was mixed gender, very much uh, in the state system. So yeah, that was my experience. And then on to a, a technical school, which was somewhere between the grammar school and secondary modern school in the tripartite system that we had at that time. And fast forward many years, obviously, you know, education is something that you work on, and it's been very important to you. But 
What made you become interested in education and in working on education? I think the kind of driving force behind the work I did for my PhD in the 70s was an interest in naturally occurring behaviour. The view that psychology in particular is very, very quick to get into experimental work, theory-driven experimental work, which of course is, is important. But as some people have pointed out, the problem with that is that psychology, pretty well alone amongst sciences, social sciences, missed out on a, you know, a very thorough descriptive stage to begin with. And it's part of, part of what interested me was what kids were doing in their naturally occurring environments. There is a school of psychology, which I'm very drawn to these days, called ecological psychology, which has, as it were, championed the importance of looking at naturally occurring behaviour. But then there's also an interest in the context within which that occurs. So I was kind of early, early on interested in the interactions, the relationships between children, what in the literature is called peer relations. And when it came to kind of a sort of the site of special scientific interest, as it were, the school playground is quite a, an important one because you can get relatively free from adult control and supervision what kids are really like. And in a way, all this morphed into the school itself and then it became very, very interested when I was, this would be the late 70s, in uh, classrooms. And, you know, the classroom's a very weird thing, isn't it? You've got like 30 kids sometimes. You've got one person, maybe a, a teaching assistant. There's no other environment quite like that. And it has a particular dynamic and a particular sort of set of relationships and rules and conventions, which is pretty unique. And I, I still am rather fascinated by the whole way that works and the way in which one can look at it from the point of view is, you know, what works in this context and what doesn't work so well. So it's trying to get a handle on that that I think has underpinned a lot of what I've done over the course of my research. I understand that you worked at the Thomas Crown Research Unit at one point, and that's where I'm based at at the moment. How is that experience and how did you come to work at TCRU? Well, it was in 19... 80, and I, I basically, like a lot of people, I saw what was an incredibly attractive job to me advertised on the London Infant School Study with Barbara Tizard. And I, I remember being interviewed by all sorts of grand people, including Basil Bernstein, who was a bit of a, a grandee of the Institute of Education. And I was so pleased to have got that job. So it was my entry into a really thoroughgoing professional piece of research on the progress of kids in schools. It also introduced me to another main theme of my research, I think, which has been an interest in longitudinal methods. So naturalistic longitudinal methods, so rather than sort of setting up experiments. So you can follow kids over time and then you can ask questions about what's going on. But in a way, you can also model causality, you know, what's causing what. If you look at it over time, you can get a handle on that. And over the course of my time at the Institute, I've been influenced by a number of people, including Harvey Goldstein, who's something of a guru when it comes to multi-level statistics, who was very articulate on the value of longitudinal naturalistic research. If it's done properly and if it's measured properly, you can get a good handle on what's going on. I'm so excited to hear that you, you worked with Barbara Tizard. And obviously, as a psychologist myself, I, for me, that's, as I said, something that's just really, really exciting. So what was it like working with Barbara Tizard and what were the things that you learned from her? I learned a lot about the everyday aspects of research. I learned a lot about sort of interrogating data to try to understand the uh, sort of underlying narrative that was developing. I mean, it may sound a bit odd, but I think it's fair to say I learned something about being quite brave 
in going where it seems that the data are taking you, being pretty relentless and tenacious in following that, that really appealed to me. That was something, you know, there was no cutting corners. It was really trying to get a handle on what is going on. I, th- I mean, I th- if I had looked over my my kind of academic life in terms of people that have influenced me, Barbara Tizel would be right up there, I think. I like what you're saying about taking the time to thoroughly look at your data and the information. And I just think increasingly where there's so much time pressure and it's it's so difficult to be able to have that luxury to really, really look through the data and understand what it's telling you. But it's, it's great that that's kind of been instilled in you and that you're reminding us of how important it is really, I think. I think that has been a lucky, in a sense lucky, maybe not we built it in, but of the, the research projects I've done, the class size project, which we'll talk about no doubt, the teaching assistant work and the collaborative group work project, the spring project, they were long term projects and they looked at kids over time. One of the things we were able to do was to kind of in an accumulative way, an iterative way, build up a story about what was going on. And I think you're absolutely right. You need, I think, the time to do that. And then if, if something's not working or the things are in conflict, come back to it from a different angle. And what does that tell you? Maybe even collect more data to see if that helps. That's very, very important, I think, in the research process rather than a kind of a one-off form of data collection, quick analysis, and there you go. And with your longitudinal studies, I mean, are there I guess the thing about longitudinal studies, as you say, is that you work with a group of of people for a long time over a number of years. And I mean, have you kind of developed relations with any of your participants? Do you continue to keep in touch with them? Or are there any particular participants that really stand in your mind as being ones that have really influenced how you've thought about, you know, your your studies and your research? It's quite a difficult question because you've done lots of work. No, I think that's uh, that's a very good question. I mean, I've recently uh, retired from the full-time post, but I'm now an emeritus professor. And I've had a chance to kind of reflect back. No doubt, if we'd have had an opportunity to have sort of face-to-face gatherings, we would have you know, had a, a gathering to mark the retirement. But it has led me to think back. And I, I, I would like to think that very seriously about the value of colleagues in one's life, actually. It's a different kind of relationship. I have felt that the relationships I've had with colleagues on the big research projects, the class size project, the collaborative group work project, and the teaching assistant project, some of whom actually are the same people that kind of they've carried through, have been extremely rewarding. And I, I feel I've learned as much from them as, you know, if anything, the other way around. It's been a, a very valuable experience. And it, it kind of helps because you can ring people up, you know, and say, this is bothering me about this, you know, the data we've got here, for example. Can we, you know, can we work it through? And I think so much of research, if it's done well, in my experience, is a really important problem-solving activity. You know, I get slightly worried when people just do an analysis, statistical analysis, and then they get the data and that's presented. And you think, well, is that all there is? <laughs> It's important to look at the nuances. So so really what you're saying is kind of working in teams and the people that you've worked with have been really important. But I guess I was also asking about the, the people you've been studying, rather. Is there any, do you continue to keep in touch with any of the people you've been studying for all of those years? Because I guess there were longitudinal studies and you must have first met them when they were much younger and you've seen them grow up in a sense. Well, the, the, the most um, relevant experience to that question, I think, was in the um, study we did at Thomas Coram. Because when I was with Barbara, we followed the children up to when they were seven and we did a very thoroughgoing analysis. Ian Pluis was the statistician on that who was later at Thomas Coram or stayed on at Thomas Coram. And I was later on on able to get an ESRC grant to follow the children up when they were 11 and I also managed to get a grant to follow them up when they were 16. So I was reminded of this because I was kind of looking at files that are in my room which I have to kind of deal with (laughs) 
and we found the little red book, no, the big red book, actually, on which we had the children's sort of names and details. And I have to say, going back and talking to them when they were 16 was um, a, a quite an amazing experience after all those years. You know, you could, there's something interesting about human development where you can, there's something about a spark within a person that sort of shines through over their childhood and in some kind of strange way comes through in their um, at sort of early adulthood as well, I think. I think that's really, I mean, it's really great to hear about the fact that you have done this longitudinal work and you were able to kind of actually still go back to the same group of young people. It's really hard, actually, sometimes to keep the contact details and to be able to go back. So it's so great that you had this, you know, really systematic system and you were able to see them, I guess, grow up in a sense. And have you visited any of them since they were 16 or did the study end? No, as we know, research is a little bit relentless in uh, moving on to the next grant. So, although it would be very, very nice to be able to do that, it, has, um, it hasn't been possible. But there have been, I mean, I think the first study, big study I did after that would have been the class size project, which was an amazingly difficult study to set up, actually, because the government didn't want to fund it. And so Peter Mortimer, who was then the director of the IOE, and I managed to get together a consortium of local authorities who were mighty fed up with the government not showing any interest in the topic of class sizes in schools. And so we started this study off with a, a contribution from a number of local authorities. But slightly ironically, later on, the government, which was then a Labour government, actually picked up the study. And so we were able to carry on right through to when the children were 11, looking at the relationship between class size and pupil outcomes. But also, more importantly, I think, class size and the processes within classrooms like teaching, which I think are very, very important. That's fascinating. And I want to hear more about kind of what your findings were in the different debates. But I think it'd be great to start, first of all, by asking you about where we are now. Like, are class sizes in the UK large compared to other countries? Yes, well, maybe the best source of data on class sizes is not ideal, but the best sort of data is the volume that comes out from OECD called Education at a Glance. It comes out on an annual basis. And it's like it's about 40, 400, 500 pages long. Deep within it, you'll find the data on class sizes. UK has the fourth largest class sizes in the OECD region. Sorry, by OECD, you mean the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Is that right? That's, that's, the, that's the one. That's it. And it's the, it produces an annual source of data, which is really quite invaluable and you'll find the data on class sizes in that. Now, the average across the primary sector for the OECD countries, which is most countries in the industrial world, is 21. The UK class size average for primary is 27. So there's two things of interest about that. One is it's relatively large. It's the fourth largest across the whole region. But it's also uniquely means that class sizes in primary schools at the UK are larger than they are at secondary schools. So we have a slightly odd situation in the UK, as I say, rather unique, where class sizes are are sort of inverted in a way which you might have thought would be pedagogically, you know, in terms of teaching, rather more advisable, which would be to have smaller classes at primary and then go into larger classes at secondary. They get smaller when you go into secondary schools, which is, as I say, rather odd. I mean, that's really interesting to hear the numbers and the fact that it goes down. And I mean, my understanding is that this debate over class sizes or class size differences has gone on for many years. And you alluded to it when you talked about your study that you did a few years ago. So can you describe the different positions taken? Yes, it's very, very enduring. 
and it's it's very worldwide. It's a very big debate in the USA, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Holland, in many many countries around the world. Since when, well, in fact, when going way way back, it was a an issue back in the kind of seventies, and it's just carried on. The debate is really between those who spend their life teaching in schools, many 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 of whom argue that class size matters to teaching and learning. To them, it's self-evident that the larger the class, the more difficult it is for them in terms of teaching and the, the less easy it is for them to sort of do their job. But on the other side of the argument, there is a strong view from a number of researchers and some policymakers, including the head of the research at the OECD, whose name is Schleicher, Andrea Schleicher, who's argued along with many other people that actually class size isn't terribly important. It's relatively modest. And if you've got any money to spend in the system, spend it on something else, and they tend to argue it should go into teacher professional development rather than class sizes, which is a view that I think is probably not right. I can explain why that is, if, if you like. Yes, please do. In a book that we've just written called Rethinking Class Size, The Complex Story of Impact on Teaching and Learning, which is published by UCL Press, we try to develop what we call the class size conundrum, this persistent and pervasive gap between the views of most practitioners and the views of researchers. And then sort of the necessary implication of this kind of gap is the view that teachers must have somehow be wrong. Because the research evidence is almost always couched in terms of the relationship between class size on the one hand and pupils' academic progress in first language and maths on the other. And typically the research and the, the sort of reviews of research, particularly in meta-analyses, which are like sort of putting lots and lots of studies together so you arrive at a common sort of metric to accommodate all this different work, tend to come up with a view that the relationship between class size and pupil academic outcomes is relatively small. In my view, that misses very, very important things, which if you don't know about what goes on in classrooms, you really can't really understand that relationship, statistical relationship between class size and pupil outcomes. So our view is that teachers and researchers tend to have different things in mind when thinking about class size. Researchers are completely centred on the relationship between class size and academic outcomes. Teachers, we think, have a much broader understanding and a broader appreciation beyond the test score at a particular point in time. So there's, they may even be reconcilable. You know, you, these um, statistical relationships are there, but what teachers think is also important. And a lot of our research has been an effort to try to go beyond the statistical connection between class size and academic outcomes to say, what's going on? I'll give you an example of why it matters. I mean, it may be that a teacher in a large class focuses all her attention to getting kids up to a good test score in reading and in mathematics. But that could be at the expense of a whole range of other things which are being neglected, which I think our research has, um, has shown kind of happening. It may also be that the teacher in the last class is, as it were, soaking up the pressure herself. We found a lot of teachers who are kind of almost crying in pain at the thought that they've got to teach a class of 35. The classroom management demands are really quite severe. So a lot of the, the book and our work has been an effort to get, drill down into it, look at what's going on in the classroom context to see exactly what does it mean if you've got a class of 32 versus a class of 17 or 15. It's great in a way because what I'm hearing is like there's clearly this is two sides of this debate that's going on and um, the research seems to be saying one thing, teachers seem to be saying something else and in a way you're sort of you're trying to bridge the gap between them. You talked about the meta-analysis and this uh, I think you were alluding to the work by John Hattie 
and the Sutton Trust Toolkit. Did this work take into account teachers' perspectives as well, or, or was it mainly kind of, so what studies did this meta-analysis look at? No, the, the meta-analyses that have been done, um, which we looked at in some detail, including a more recent one that was done for the, uh, the Campbell Consortium, they really prioritise, as I say, this relationship between, the statistical relationship between class size and pupil academic attainment. And on the basis of that, they make a judgment about class size. So they're typically expressed in something called an effect size. I see. And then that is compared with other sort of initiatives. And it's concluded that the effect of class size is very important. But our view is that that's unfair. It's not a fair test. You know, class size is not an intervention. It's not like a reading intervention or something to help with, you know, metacognitive learning or, or something. It's just the number of children in a class at a given point. What is crucial is what the teacher does in a class of a different size. It's the teaching. And that, that's really where I think the research on class size has, has kind of failed us in that it hasn't really engaged with what the effects are for teaching. And I don't mean just asking teachers. I mean systematically observing what goes on in classrooms. So a big feature of our longitudinal study of class sizes was systematic observation studies of what went on in classes of different sizes. And it's it's that that I think really started to nail some of the consequences of class size, almost logical consequences of class size, which we then followed up in terms of more, you know, detailed exploration of the practitioner's experience, case studies within schools and interviews and national questionnaires as well. It's really great to hear that you actually took the, I mean, kind of you looked at the argument or the, the debate from a different perspective and you really focused on the people who were on the front line in the sense. When you say you did observations or observational analysis, what do you mean by that? Like, what kind of things were you observing? And then you also said it was longitudinal. So, like, how many, how long did you do these observations for? Well, these are very um, intensive forms of data collection. Anyone that's ever done this is probably still suffering the consequences. It's a fairly kind of, it can be seen to be fairly sort of mind numbing in the laborious activity one does with systematic observation. The basic logic is that you define in advance the kinds of behaviours that you think are important in terms of what it is you're studying. You develop a kind of a category system which reflects that. You trial it, make sure it works. And then you'll observe, in our studies, we observe a sample of children in each classroom for multiple times across multiple days to get a representative kind of account of their behaviour. So one of the main things we looked at was the amount of time they spent with the teacher, with other children and on their own. And then within each of those, there were sort of subcategories. So we were able to say how much time children spent in one-to-one interactions with the teachers and how much time the children in the classes actively sort of interacted with the teacher by responding or initiating or carrying on a conversation. And there was absolutely no doubt that these were affected by class size. So it may not surprise you to learn that in the larger classes, there's less individual attention and there's less active involvement in what's going on. We also had another category, which was kind of the amount of classroom distraction, sort of classroom engagement, off task, on task, as you might call it in the um, everyday sort of sense. And that was interesting because we found, particularly in secondary schools, because we were able to go into secondary schools as well. And we found that it was the low attaining children who suffered more in large classes in terms of more off task behavior. And there was more critical comments from the teachers in large classes. And that, I think, points out something else, which is that 
this is uh, kind of interconnects the class size sort of issue with disadvantage and with initial attainment. So it's the children who have the most ground to make up who suffer more in large classes. That is fascinating. Is there variation across the UK in terms of class sizes? Like, I'm obviously between state schools and private schools, there must be quite a lot of variation. But within state schools, is there variation in class sizes? Yeah, I don't have the data in front of me. We looked at the national picture. So we have data from a number of different schools across different parts of the country. I think it's fair to say that we tended it tended to be more of a, an urban sample of schools. So the smaller schools tend to be the more rural schools. Uh, we collaborated on one of our projects to do with collaborative work, group work with researchers in Scotland, and they had a number of quite small schools uh, where the situation may have been somewhat different. And you're right to say, of course, that private schools, and they make a virtue, don't they, of having smaller classes. That point you made about kind of low attain, attainment children who tend to do not so well on certain tasks and the fact that in larger class sizes they're more likely to be called out I think that's really really interesting and the other thing that I think I'm really glad I asked you about the observational analysis because it really shows that the research that you've done is grounded in so much detailed work and so much detailed evidence and it actually reminds me of it takes me back to my PhD when I had to do coding of like mother-child interaction and it is really painstaking this work kind of doing this observational analysis but it's so important because you do get a systematic picture and the fact that you did it over a number of days I think I mean it just it says a lot it means that you can kind of be confident I guess of the findings that you had. I think so. The main way we've done our research has been multi-method studies. I think that's valuable. So I think systematic observation of the sort I've described is, is very useful, but it is limited. It's rather broad brush and it deals with, you know, the, the frequency within which, which things occur. And that's not always the most important thing. You know, I mean, I, I've often said this, but I can recall when I was at school in the large classes that we had a teacher saying something rather kind to me about my future career or what I might do. And it was so unexpected that it had quite a, a marked impact. So it was like a frequency of one, but its impact on me was quite important. So it's not just the frequency of occurrence. So we've also done case studies and we've also got questionnaires and interviews with practitioners as well. But you, I think you have to kind of put them together. Classroom management is quite clearly more of an issue with a large class. I've seen teachers, deputy head teachers, take an assembly with hundreds of kids and they've been it's been a, a marvelous experience with everyone you know drawn to the story that was being told them you know take other things being equal classroom management is more difficult in a larger class we find the relationships between the children themselves can also be affected by class size in terms of just how fractious everything is the degree to which kids can sort of fall out with each other but I suppose what struck us more when we looked in detail at the data was also that the tasks that teachers give children, the way that the curriculum is expressed, you know, in terms of what goes on, can be affected by class size. So in a large class, teachers, are, we found, are more less likely to be doing problem-solving activity, practical activity, investigative activity. But there's also another way in which class size works, which is, I think, kind of overlooked, and that is the effect on teachers themselves in terms of marking, report writing, preparation, planning. So it's it's kind of glossed over, but teachers said to us, look, I've got 32 in the class. They've done three pieces of work today. That means I've got over 90 bits of work to look at tonight, just to kind of comment on. These, uh, these mount up 
And so one of the consequences, and we don't have hard data on this, but one of the things that comes through is the effect on, in a sense, teachers' own well-being. So one thing we do in the book has been to develop a model, a framework, by which one can understand the interconnected way that this works. So for us, class size is not really about the relationship between academic attainment only. It's about an interconnected network of relations with, uh, with classroom processes. And if you don't have a handle on that, then you can very easily misunderstand the data on class size and academic attainment. You said at the beginning that you've been particularly interested in ecological psychology. Is that what you said? So is that has that influenced your thinking in a sense? Because um, I guess you, you are talking about wider context, aren't you there? And and even what you said just now about teachers' well-being, people forget to ask teachers about how they're doing. But we know that like retention rates of teachers it varies a lot in different schools. So it is so important. It's a very old and I'm afraid rather neglected school of psychology which, because of the fellowship I've been doing, it's enabled me to kind of track it back. It has its roots in a very early psychologist called William James. It was the brother, actually, of Henry James, the novelist. And he was writing at the end of the 19th century. And he, along with other early social psychologists, developed a very important focus on the context within which kind of people live their lives. And as it were, conceptual frameworks to help with that. But the most important kind of person in that whole field was someone called Roger Barker, who looked very, very closely at the behaviour of folks in small American towns and then developed a kind of a conceptual framework to understand what was going on. And the insight he draws to it is that you have to look at the settings, the, the kind of interactive behavioural settings within which people you know, work and live their lives. If you know something about the settings within which they live their lives, you can learn a lot about their lives. If you do, it's, it's more than just individual differences between children. It's about the context within which they, they live. It's kind of the basic social psychological insight, really, that we tend to underestimate the environment and think more about the, the kind of the personal. But as a theoretical perspective, I found it really terribly helpful because we do, I think, tend to underestimate the context within which we behave. And with policies of inclusion, you know, not getting into the, the debate about the rights and wrongs of that, but one consequence has been that teachers are often faced as particularly at primary schools, because they often teach you know, all the children in a class, quite a diverse group of kids in terms of their attainments, in terms of their, you know, their behaviour and so on. And it's our view that a large class just makes the job of inclusion and the job of differentiation, which is kind of what teachers have to do. You, know, you cannot, as in some places, I've been to China and seen some of the teaching there, it's, it can kind of work in large classes because everyone is taught at the same kind of level. That's not going to work in the kind of diverse classrooms we have in the UK. So there's almost necessarily more a differentiation and more individual attention and support needed. I mean, I think a lot of the problems with this are that when people say that class size doesn't matter, they have in mind the idea that it's just about lecturing. It's just about someone standing there and telling people about something. But that just shows a limited understanding of what teaching is, in my experience. Teaching is much more than that. This conversation and this kind of of what teachers have to do and the increasing demands on them, it could be a very long one. <laughs> I wanted to actually ask you, thinking about all of your research, what are the implications for policy and practice? And do you have any examples of ways in which your research has kind of made tangible impact? So collaborative group work can work really well. We have other recommendations, including how to deal with marking in large classes. We still pl plod on with the idea that we've got to do this kind of marking 
activity and we refer to a number of pieces of work not ours but other people who are developing alternatives to marking i I think probably the most impactful study that i've been involved in that i directed was the study on teaching assistants it's interesting actually why it is that some studies which may be equally kind of good in terms of the quality of the research and the research design etc which ones take off and which ones don't but our study of teaching assistants has been very impactful i think because we had a the rather surprising result, which we didn't understand at first, which was this negative relationship between the amount of support children had from a teaching assistant and how well they did in academic attainment. And it was only when we began to do the classroom observations that we began to interpret that result. And it became pretty clear that the way that schools are tending to deploy teaching assistants was not in the best interest of children. They tended to in effect, work with the lowest attaining children, the children with special educational needs, disabilities, while the teacher worked with the other children. So from the teacher's point of view, it kind of worked because they were able to teach with the rest of the children. But the children who, in a sense, were at the lower end of the attainment distribution were not receiving the attention they should have got from the teacher. So a lot of that work has been an effort to show how we can the teaching assistants to supplement the teacher rather than replace it. So not getting rid of teaching assistants, which some people interpreted our results to show, but rather, you know, let's think of smart ways that we can use these folks to add to what the teacher's doing, not taking away from what, you know, for, not sort of substituting from the teacher. Mm-hmm. And Peter, this is is this this is your work with Rob Webster, is that right? Rob was a researcher on the, on the project. It grew out of the class size research project, actually. So in the early days, we followed children right through from so it was in primary schools and secondary schools. So and Rob joined the project and became an important member of the team. And then we went on to with, with uh, my other colleague Tony Russell. The three of us went on to develop. If this is the problem, what do we do about it? Yeah, absolutely. And we know Rob presents the podcast as well. And I remember back in season one, I spoke to Rob a, a little bit more about this. And, you know, it, it's great we've heard more about it today. It's, it's, it's such brilliant work. So clearly there's been a lot of different aspects of your research that have had tangible impact. And it, you've really made me want to read the book. I can't wait to get my copy. And I'm really excited to read more about marking tips because I know this is for school, but I, I want to learn for myself as well, <laughs> given that I've got a lot of marking to do this year. The other thing I wanted to ask you, because you've done all of this work now, do you think we still need more research on class size effects? And so where is the gap now? And what kind of research do we need? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, well, what we don't need, it seems to me, are more meta-analyses, pretty well of the same kind of studies, drawing conclusions about the effect of class size on the basis of some statistical relationship between class size and pupil outcomes. We've done that to death. It doesn't help in the sense that we, as I've said in this interview, unless you know what's going on in classrooms, you can't really interpret that. But what I think we do need are what I've called dedicated studies, studies where we we don't sort of take data that someone else has collected, but we develop our own methods of data collection, you know, fit for purpose, which can help address the relationship between class size and pupil outcomes, not just how well children do in first language and maths, but what about the other kind of subjects and the other forms of outcome that have been rather neglected in all this? But also we get good data on the classroom processes in terms of teaching, relationships between the children, the tasks that are going on and and so on. Okay, we we could use a kind of a multi-methodist study, but what I think we haven't got anywhere in the literature on this topic are good quantitative studies, actually, which 
factor in uh, relationships between class size and pupil outcomes, but also what's going on within the classroom. That's something we don't have. And I, I think that is kind of, for me, something that's crying out to be done. And there's one other form of research which I think is very important, and that is to say, if we can make a good judgment about what seems to work in a small class or a large class, let's test that. We have no studies that I know of where people have tested experimentally. For example, is if we set up a program of collaborative group work in small classes, how does that work? You know, what kinds of impact does that have? We, know, we need studies which develop sort of teaching pedagogical solutions and then test them to see if they work within small and large classes. So just looking at class size on its own strikes me as being insufficient. You have to know what's going on and then make use of that in the studies. They're the two main areas I think we still need work on. Back to this idea of context and understanding, being on the ground in a sense and really understanding the different factors that affect teachers and children in the classrooms. I guess just, I mean, I think it's really important given, you know, the world in which we're living in to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on classrooms and class sizes. And is there anything that really you'd like to reflect on this? Because there have been staff absences and sometimes teachers have had teach supersized classes in a sense. So is there anything that you might want to reflect or say say on this? And Well, I'd very much like to sympathise with teachers at the current time. They don't always get the best press, do they? But I think they're, I mean, my experience, and I've got family members who are teachers, they are doing their very, very best. And as you say, uh, in some situations with staff shortages, they are having to kind of field what you might call a supersized class. So if you double up, you've got 30 in each, you've got 60. I mean, I think what I've said already about the consequences of that for what goes on in the classroom are likely to hold. You know, so there'll be less individual attention, the tasks that you can do and, and so on are all going to be affected by that. Although I don't know of any anyone that's been looking at this sort of thing <laughs> in a kind of slightly perverse way it's a, a wonderful kind of context within which one could do research to see if you know these supersized classes how people get on with it i mean some people might argue well if it's just about lecturing you can lecture to you know in higher education we have sometimes you know 100 200 people in a, in a hall or even remotely these days with covid and if it's just about telling them something then it doesn't matter what the class size is but going back to what i was saying earlier on teaching is much more than that so having supersized classes may be something one has to do in the short term but it isn't a long-term solution and it has you know one has to think very seriously about the consequences for teaching. In a sense the COVID-19 pandemic has it's exacerbated so many different aspects and created all these different challenges and I do see what you mean it it would be it's a it it would be such an interesting moment for, for doing research maybe we'll find out whether some happens maybe in the coming weeks. Peter, just wanted to ask you, so you said that you're working on the Leverhulme project just now and you've just, this uh, your amazing new book has just come out. And is there anything else that you're working on at the moment, kind of just to end and what should we look forward to or what can we expect from you in the future? Well, Leverhulme Major Research Fellowship has, it hasn't been um, like a big research project where I've collected data. It's been the opportunity for me to reflect on the research that we've done. And in the case of the class size work, it enabled me to re-analyze the data we'd collected. So going back to the interviews, going back to the questionnaire responses and making sense of it. So that's what is in the class size book. But the 
the kind of longer term aim is to develop a way of thinking about the classroom context and in particular the implications it has for for learning within the classroom at the moment it's called a social pedagogy of classroom learning now i understand that the the when I mean, the term social pedagogy is slightly um, ambiguous and it's used in different ways by different people so it may be that that's changing but it, it's looking in particular at the interconnected way that things work within classrooms it's looking at the sort of the way that the classroom context itself is dynamic and affects the the way that people who inhabit that environment kind of behave but it also takes on what we call the relational so it's it's developing a framework to better understand classrooms in such a way that we can help inform you know how we can do things better really we neglected that i think and that's kind of my longer term aim is to is to develop that and work on it so it's, it's in a sense more theoretical rather than data collection. That sounds fascinating and it sounds like it's going to be really important work that again will have such a tangible impact. Peter, it's been just really wonderful learning about all of the amazing studies you've worked on and kind of also about how much your work has practical implications and how much it's really, I can, I can really hear how committed you are to trying to make a change and listening to the voices of teachers as well. So thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking to you today. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I enjoyed talking to you. If you'd like to know more about Peter, you can visit the IOE website. Don't forget to check out his new book on rethinking class size, which you'll find on the UCL Press website. It's open access, so available for all to download. Before we go, don't forget, you can catch up on past seasons of Research for the Real World and other IOE podcasts on your favourite podcasting app. Just search for IOE Podcast. Also, in the show notes, we have a quick survey for our listeners to do. Please let us know what you think of the podcast. I'm Himera Iqbal and see you again next time. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 